I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid and the only podcast to know that you're not sated until you are quaded. I am Jeb Lund, that boat you're sick of seeing parked in your neighborhood, and I'm here today with your co-host, a chill wind that stops men in their tracks, Sarah D. Bunting. This exposition blows. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned exposition, Sarah, because I'm very happy to have a guest here today. We are welcoming back a guest from last season's episode on the Oliver Stone film, Any Given Sunday. He is a co-founder of Defector.com, as well as the co-host of the Distraction Podcast, as well as my co-host of our outrageously popular Hallmark Movies podcast, It's Christmas Town. Please welcome a wolf in ship's clothing, David Roth. Merry Christmas, Jeb. Merry Christmas, Sarah. Nice to see you Thank both. Thank you. Thank you for how's returning. The, uh, how's it going? It's a little chilly. Not going to lie. Yeah. When you had your, your sort of um, extra hot great style quip there, and I, I don't get to do one as a guest, but I think if I did, if I could have prepared the audio of Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze in that whatever Batman sequel he was in where he goes, <laughs> all right, everybody, chill. <laughs> I said that to myself during a couple of the Ice Age moments watching the movie late last night. Yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast. Ice to meet you. Nice. Tell you. Oh, uh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> so. I'm excited because we got to watch Roland Emmerich's 2004 film, The Day After Tomorrow, a film that is near and dear to my heart anyway, even before you add the Quaid component, the Quaid quotient. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, that delightful romp through climatology, Sarah, do we have any podcast business? We do not. Yay! All right. And I'm just going to check, uh, where is the cuffs counter? Are we still at zero for two weeks now? Uh, Yes. Excellent. All right, let's just go right ahead and dive into the plot here. Jack Hall, Dennis Quaid, is a paleoclimatologist, and we open with him on the Antarctic ice sheet with two partners, a dopey but nice guy, and the guy who played a controlling daughter-stealing dad on Law & Order and a controlling contract killer on Law & Order Criminal Intent. <laughs> the ice shelf gives way, and the dopey partner almost falls to his death. Jack, however, does something heroic and deeply stupid, on behalf of Climate Truth. I bet neither of these things will come up again. <laughs> Next, we see Jack at a climate conference in India. He says that melting ice caps could introduce fresh water that reverses the Atlantic current and the Gulf Stream, plunging the Northern Hemisphere into a new ice age. Vice President Dick Cheney lookalike is unimpressed. The economy, after all, is just as fragile as the climate. Meanwhile, Jack is a forgetful dad whose climate crusading has alienated him from his wife, Dr. Lucy Hall, Seal Award, and his son, Sam Hall, Jake Gyllenhaal. Jack breaks his promise to remember to pick up Sam, and this, too, will never come up again. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dr. Rapson, Ian Holm, a climatologist in Scotland, notices that just after beating Jack in India, Jack's prediction is coming true. The Gulf Stream is reversing and cooling. Giant storms appear over the Northern Hemisphere. Los Angeles is devastated by giant tornadoes. Helicopters in England crash after their fuel lines freeze. A massive storm surge is heading for Manhattan. This is a problem because Sam is in Manhattan now on an academic team tournament because he really wants to hook up with Emmy Rossum. Sam manages to get through to his dad, who has been snubbed by the vice president again, and warns Sam to stay inside and stay warm and wait for him to get there. Otherwise, he will freeze to death in place when these globe-spanning cold hurricanes descend on everything. We meet the standard clutch of supporting disaster characters, a smart homeless man, a pitiless cop, an Alan Bloom-style bookish nerd, and the free-spirit, free-thinker woman who spars with him, a pack of escaped wolves, and the direst wolf of all, 
a rich boy who also wants to have sex with Emmy Rossum. People we like freeze, people we don't like freeze. Jack's assistants definitely don't reprise the opening scene in a mall in, I'm guessing, Paramus. American refugees are stopped at the Mexican border. Vice President, not Dick Cheney, definitely has to suck eggs. And Jack and Sam learn a little something about each other in the process of Dad finally fulfilling a promise. We finish with the Quaid grin as Dad realizes his son is definitely going to score with Emmy Rossum. <laughs> Did I miss anything? Oh, I don't think so. You know, there uh, are some CGI uh, weather formations and stuff, but that's um, not really a character or a plot point. It's just really the reason the movie exists. Yeah, <laughs> it really doesn't come up a lot. Obviously, for the devoted Quaid heads and uh, Quaid pervs that listen to this podcast, the movie ending on his signature goofy grin as he looks out the window of a helicopter or plane taking him to safety, it's fan service for the the Quaid community. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right, Jeb, that uh, the grin is 100% because his son is going to get it in with Emmy Rossum and not (laughs) because his son is alive. That alone is not enough. Son's going to get yeah, it the, That's good. The implied last line of dialogue in the film is him going, hell yeah, buddy. Mm-hmm. My boy fucking, okay. <laughs> My son finna smash. Yeah, just reaching a fist across Air Force 12 just to get a little bump <laughs> from kiddo. That's right. Things are about to finally get hot. <laughs> Oh, boo. Yeah. All right. Well, contemporary reviews were not as enthusiastic as we have been already, and I assume are, are not going to be as enthusiastic as we're going to be for the rest of the episode, going from shortest and, and most Philistine-like to uh, most empathetic. I'll start with Anthony Lane of The New Yorker, a useless shitbag. A shambles of dud writing and dramatic inconsequence, which left me determined to double my consumption of fossil fuels. Anthony Lane pretty much just invalidating himself as a reviewer and a person. More like Anthony Lame. That's right. That's right, David. Meanwhile, David Edelstein in Slate had a review that typified a lot of reviews of this movie, which seemed to focus on the fact that it was inaccurate as somehow impeaching a summer blockbuster. He writes, If I had to catalog all the moronic plot turns in the day after tomorrow, we'd be here until the next Ice Age. It is just so very bad. You can have a pretty good time snickering at it unless, like me, you think there's something to this global warming thing and you shudder at the irony of a movie meant to warn people about a dangerous environmental trend that completely discredits it. I would suggest that David Edelstein omitting the part of the movie where uh, global warming actually precipitates the events of this would discredit the review, but what do I know? Manola Dargis in the LA Times is a little bit more empathetic. She writes, Emmerich has destroyed New York twice before, but never as beautifully. As dark storm clouds surge, the water surrounding Manhattan rises up, then devours the city. Keeping the camera high and pointing down on his digital cityscape, Emmerich gives us a bird's eye view of the water swelling above the city's buildings and flooding through its narrow corridors. Eerily lifelike and mesmerizing, this protracted scene, shaded in tones of steely gray, carries undeniable surprising force. But the story is too silly, too woefully underwritten to stake a claim on seriousness. It doesn't help that Quaid, who acquits himself well enough, has automatons playing his son and estranged wife. Even smack in the middle of all this severe weather, neither Gyllenhaal, who does little beyond exercise his inner puppy, nor Celia Ward, yet another iteration on the Ann Archer, Bonnie Bedelia, stoic mom type, so much as stirs the air, much less your emotions. Surely it says something that the most moving performance in The Day After Tomorrow comes from a digital city. The great secret of a good disaster flick is that it's always somebody else. The square in the airplane, the fat lady in the topsy-turvy ship, who has to make it out while we're all safe in our seats. Somehow, 
It just isn't as much fun when we can imagine that it's us trying to make it out alive. And lastly, our buddy Ebert gave it three out of four and wrote the review that seems most in line with somebody watching an action movie. He writes, The movie is profoundly silly. What surprised me is that it's also very scary. The special effects are on such an awesome scale that the movie works despite its cornball plotting. When tornadoes rip apart Los Angeles, not sparing the Hollywood sign, when a wall of water roars into New York, when a Russian tanker floats down a Manhattan street, when snow buries skyscrapers, when the crew of a space station can see nothing but violent storm systems, well, you pay attention. What's amusing in movies like The Day After Tomorrow is the way the screenplay veers from the annihilation of subcontinents to whether Sam should tell Laura he loves her. Meanwhile, Ian Holm proves that a gifted British-trained actor can walk into almost any scene and make it seem like it means something. The Day After Tomorrow is ridiculous, yes, but sublimely ridiculous, and the special effects are stupendous. I don't think it's a secret that Roger Ebert is pretty much in line with my take on the movie. I find this a tremendously fun, brainless movie that I wind up watching, not every time I find it on pay cable, but a lot. So how did you guys feel? I never saw this before. I realized they're probably going to pull my um, coitologist card for this, but uh, I had never actually seen this before. I, you know, understood the gist. That he's a paleoclimatologist is, once again, ridiculous. One of the first notes I had was like, <laughs> who else did they go out to before Quaid? And not just that, but how many? Like, was he third? Was he sixth? He's actually pretty... <laughs> the idea of him outdueling Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, given that he chooses to play this completely straight and utterly commits to the idea that he's in, like, the sit room talking to the NASA rep and um, talking about North Atlantic vortices. He's pretty good, but the movie makes it clear very quickly that you're there for the visuals, and if you choose to question the, quote, science, 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 sciencing, you're going to have a miserable time. Like, that ship is not getting that far into the island. It makes no sense that only credits cast don't freeze instantly. Why does the vortex lift right when he gets to Manhattan? Because script reasons. If you question the science, you're toast and you'll have a miserable time in this movie. But if you're just there to enjoy the air conditioning and enjoy the visuals and, I don't know, you like frozen statues of liberty, I really enjoyed it. I had a fine time. It was very dumb. But Ian Holm is always good, and it kept moving. It keeps moving. Like, you don't quite have time to complain to yourself yep. about the fact that these dire wolves look like color forms because they still haven't quite figured out <laughs> animal weight CGI properly yet in 2004. But it was, it was fine. I liked it a lot. I'd watch it again. But it's dumb. Yeah, I think that's the enlightened response to this movie i mean like the do you remember at the time it being advertised as like a movie that every like right thinking person should see i i do vaguely yes. remember that and it thinks it's being really cutting by making perry king the president and it thinks it's having this commentary on the bush cheney administration and i guess it is but I think the movie thinks it's more serious than it is, but it works as an unserious entertainment, so I'm willing to forgive it its pretensions. 
Yeah, exactly that, I think. I didn't see it like when it was in theaters and everybody was like, you really should see it. It's important. This could happen. You know, because it's like, because <laughs> that is wrong. I mean, like every, but it is, there's something kind of refreshing about once you realize that, the, you know, climate change disaster movie not only does not really care about climate change, but like, honestly, like it's too, climate change is too boring for this movie's concern or its filmmakers or whatever. And so they're just sort of like, oh yeah, that would be bad. Like the coral reefs die. Is there any chance that the Statue of Liberty could be carried away by a giant wave, float down Fifth Avenue and lodge itself between the New York Public Library and the stores across the street? Like that's really where everybody's head is at in this. And like, yeah, once you are able to sort of catch that vibe there, then it's just a movie about people running away from things and CGI weather formations. And that's that's fine. It's good in that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. And it makes a sort of um, yeoman attempt to explain its own internal science, which it then proceeds to violate at every opportunity. But I kind of respected the ways in which the logical, scientific, quote unquote, parts of it were like when you were in fourth grade and you were writing a story and you got sick of it and then you just like poochied all the characters to their home planet and went outside to do something else. This is what they did. They're yeah. like, Here comes the vortex <laughs> and that's going to be your conflict. And it's like, what? Okay. Like, it's an action movie. I think yeah. Ebert's attitude is exactly right. Like, it does what it is supposed to do as an action entertainment. And for Anthony Lane to be like, how dare you force this commentary on climate change upon me? Like, buddy, come on. If this commentary is too serious for you, then like you should not read anything else in the magazine. In yeah. which your review appears. <laughs> Elizabeth Colbert walking by his office like, bitch, please. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> come on I got now. you this penguin. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a ball. Perhaps you'd like to bounce it. I remember this movie being one of the first in that kind of wave of we Americans are a beggared people without hope of policy solutions or politicians who will care. So what we have to do is we have to go drive up the box office of various culture war totems. And this and an inconvenient truth were like the obverse of going to see the passion of the Christ and making sure it was a hit. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think, you know, to a certain extent, Lane is reacting to that, but also he's a massive dickhead. So fuck him. Yeah, it's a it's a fair thing to push back against the idea of like being told that this movie is significant and that you should see it to like make Dick Cheney change his heart. Like that is funny, (laughs) admittedly, but it's not worth getting. It's just sad also, too, because it's like, what are you? That's what you're depending on. (laughs) Like Dick Cheney waking up one day and being like, what day is it, boy? And then like starting to care about emissions like we got to do better than that. Yeah. This is like, and I know I bring this up from time to time, but this is like when reviewers are like, well, Megan Fox is no Meryl Streep. Like, I'd like to see Meryl Streep try to act against a 12-story robot that they haven't even rendered yet. She's actually pretty fucking good. (laughs) Chill out. Like, understand the assignment, please. So, like, I had a couple notes that was like, did anyone, anyone want to call anyone else in Mexico and be like, so, (laughs) a couple things about to happen. (laughs) (laughs) But they don't like that's not what the movie is trying to do. They paper over it towards the end when Dick Cheney's heart grew one size in (laughs) Ciudad de Mexico. And fine. I mean, that's that's all that's all that you can really hope for. And I found Dennis Quaid's expounding to various panels of people, including Nestor Serrano, while occasionally wearing a Newsies cap. Sure. 
Yep. Like I, <laughs> I found that pleasurably hilarious. Yeah, it's it's kind of like in um the CSI series where you get to see what like Jerry Bruckheimer thinks a police uh, station uh-huh. looks like. Yeah. This has a similar sort of vibe where it's just sort of like Roland Emmerich, who has like been in a lounge chair for 15 years by a perfectly like aquamarine pool in Los <laughs> Angeles. <laughs> just imagining what a high level administrative meeting might be like at yeah. the White House. Be like, yeah, the, all the lights are turned off and the president is there. And like, just like, sure, man, whatever. Have fun with yeah. it. <laughs> also, the death, the horrible airborne deaths of the entire royal family, n- not revisited. <laughs> okay. If I remember correctly, the helicopters are on their way to rescue the royal family. So the royal family presumably just freezes on the ground where they are, which fine. Okay. Uh, one element of this, which I think is like kind of a lost art in uh, disaster stuff is that there's a lot of guys that have like five or ten lines in this movie like just little character sketches you see rick hoffman from suits getting on a bus and acting like a douche (laughs) shortly before dying which Uh is a delight but like i think that that little extra like sort of bit of filmmaking i really appreciated in this because it's clear that there's like the a plot of this which is like dad walks from washington dc to new york in snowshoes and Jake Gyllenhaal tries to get it in with Emmy Rossum. And, like, that's not really very interesting. And yet, like, it's clear, you know, and Emmerich's interest is in the CGI. So, like, the other little bits of, like, life that show up around the margins are, are kind of, like, I found that bit of it more satisfying than I think I remembered the first time around. Like, the, the moments where it kind of tries to act like a movie, I thought were delightful. Yeah. Well, and, like, Glenn Plummer and his dog. Yes, I was gratified that yep. the one animal, at least made it out but uh there are these like processy moments where he's like this is where i a traditionally unhomed person am now literally a viking because y'all idiots don't know where to start (laughs) keeping yourselves warm and i know how to do this a lot of those incidental disaster movie things were big hits Rewatching this i rewatched this with my son who is seven and um, one of the things the notes about the animals sarah i i told him you know as we're watching the flight of all birds due south i just said hey if you ever see birds doing something like that like running in one direction or flying in one direction turn right around and go in that direction immediately yeah it's a good tip but uh he had a lot of uh, of really good takes uh when the statue of liberty was consumed by waves he shouted goodbye liberty uh-huh. <laughs> and uh then when we see the policeman, the jer- the policeman who was a jerk to the homeless guy frozen to death, I said, oh, that's that policeman. And he said, yay, <laughs> he was rude to dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then another big note that I think is really important from him, and I'll just, this will be my last one for my son, as uh, he said in the, the scene with the wolves, we love dead wolves. Don't we, folks? We love them. So we love them. Unfo- it didn't work out for them this time, but <laughs> we we like it when the when there's lupine experience. Oh, terrific. Um, but I looked at him, you know, confused, and he said, "They're good for meat." And then I started laughing, and he said, "No, literally, they taste really good." So you heard it here okay. first, folks. Wow, what are they doing in Florida? I was man? I was just gonna ask, like, <laughs> your tax dollars at work? At a question mark. Right. <laughs> he goes to a blue ribbon school. Uh, I mean, I'm prepared to rate this if you guys are. Sure, certainly. Let's hear it. I'm gonna go with a seven and a half. Perfectly cromulent action entertainment. That sounds about where I was. I was gonna give it an eight. 
My big reason why I wouldn't give it a point higher is there's a big action movie sin for me. I understand that you spend a lot of money on the CGI and you've got to show it to the audience. But when you're told, like, you have to get inside immediately and somebody runs and they're not inside and they stop uh, and look at the yeah. effect that's going to kill them and give it like a good 10 count to make sure, yeah, that lethal thing is still coming. That pisses me off. And this movie mm -hmm. does that way too much. Sure does. Yeah. They do it twice. There's two big, yep. says they outrun a tidal wave and also like a killing Arctic wind. That's within like 30 minutes of each other. Yeah. And he checks the tidal wave like three times. It's like a grandmother trying to turn left onto a four lane <laughs> divided highway. It's like, what is it? Is it coming? Shit. Okay. Yeah. The only real puppy dog still aspect of Jake Gyllenhaal's performance there was that he kept doing the thing that like a dog does when you take him on a walk and it's like periodically looks back up at you to make sure you're still there. That was him doing that with a giant <laughs> CGI wall of water. Yeah. Like, do, don't you feel the leash, buddy? Still attached. Yep. Yeah. Terrific. <laughs> so where are you, Dave? I think seven and a half, seven makes sense. I mean, it's like, it's not good, you know, but it is definitely still fun to watch. And like the ways in which it's stupid are so much like jollier <laughs> than the ways in which large format action movies are stupid now that I, I like I, whatever. I found myself enjoying it in a way that I couldn't enjoy similar scales of destruction in contemporary action shit. Yeah. Mm hmm. Well, that takes us to Quaid qua Quaid. We're measuring the uh, the quaidity of Dennis in this film. Uh, how much does he achieve what we like to think of as a peak or archetypal Dennis? And just how is he doing in the movie in general? Sarah, how did you feel about it? Well, you know, a lot of Dennis Quaid's quaidosity relies on being able to tell that it's him. And you can't in like 55% of this. It's like, is that the Quaid shaped snowsuit? I can't tell. Or is that the, are we still trying to make Dash Mihawk happen? Or is that where we are in American cultural history? <laughs> Bless his heart, but you can only have one ginger at a time. And it did not end up being that guy. I, I think he's fine. <laughs> and he's, he's been in uh, the um, Ray Donovan for a really long time. Oh, has he? So he, like, right. he owns his own home and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I don't have any problem with Dash Mihawk. He's like, he started out on um, Felicity and he had a really good line about how everybody's good at three things that aren't their jobs that I bring up a lot. But um, anyway, this is not the uh, Mihawk cast yet. Quaid is fine. I think Quaid fucks the mm -hmm. Tar Ariano metric. Does this guy fuck? Yeah, I, I think he does. Oh, yeah. A little hard to tell at the end. He's pretty dilfy, I guess. But like he's wearing 78 pounds of you know, weatherproof gear and goggles and that cap in that scene outside the climate conference is a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a mistake. Yeah, it's it, it's a mistake. And especially when Ian Holm is right next to you and could wear that much better than right. you. Yeah, no. You can't wear that cap unless you're also wearing a golf glove. <laughs> yeah, or Jodfers. Dennis Quaid briefly being considered at the time for auditioning for the logo for the Masters. They were making a film about him. Sure. I mean, I would actually believe that. <laughs> Hashtag Quaid facts. But yep. yeah, I mean, he's in a lot of it, but I don't know how Quaidy this is. And he is... I'm not sure what to think of his decision to play this like extremely straight and not really be able to wink at the collection of action protagonist cliches very much. Uh, I have a clip which is relatively short, but um, this is some pretty amazing dialogue and he does a good job with it while going kind of off brand with it at the same time. What do you think's going to happen to us? 
What do you mean? I mean us. Civilization. Everybody. Mankind survived the last Ice Age. We're certainly capable of surviving this one. All depends on whether or not we're able to learn from our mistakes. I sure as hell like a chance to learn from mine. That was pretty first takey, but that's also pretty on brand for Quaid. Yeah. Um, yep. He's in a lot of this, but he's not all that Quaidy in it, except when he is. He's not great, but that's also on brand. I'm going to come in at a seven and a half again, because I think that people really do associate this movie with him highly. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be the lead in the obit, but it's going to be right after that in the graph. So seven and a half. Roth? That is a compelling argument. And I was going to say that this was less quady to me because so much of the movie, as you said, is just him like doing things, you know, like while swaddled in performance outerwear <laughs> uh, or, yep. some, or sometimes a jaunty tam. But in all of those cases that there is like, <laughs> it kind of feels like it could have been anyone in there. Whereas I think when he is like most identifiably quade to me is like when you've got a character that's kind of just like a hot dumb guy who does sports or you know things and you're like oh yeah there he is like that's that's <laughs> perfect Dennis Quaid part mm-hmm. whereas like this one it feels like he probably beat out a bunch of more cerebral actorly actor types to play the part that said like as you pointed out like all of the elements of Quaid to use a very ungainly <laughs> phrasing for <laughs> it are like for sure there like the idea of the kind of like the casualness, the kind of like faintly smirky, faintly horny self-assurance, like all of that it kind of manages to come through, even though the movie doesn't really seem to have very much interest in advancing any of that stuff. Yeah. So like, yeah, Seven seems fair, actually. Like he's kind of doing a decent amount of work of bringing his Quaid thing to a part that could not have been written with Dennis Quaid in mind. Yeah. There is also a lot of um, elementary dilemma-ing happening, which, again, it's one of those things that like, it's not good. But it's very him. Yeah. So it depends on how you score that. Like a dog caught between two people that it likes. <laughs> and I'm just going back. That's like the classic queen mindset. Yeah. I'm glad because we hit a jackpot. We hit triple sevens again. That was also my rating for this. I think he gets quadier. I think there's a, a, a switch that flips about halfway into this where he gets quadier and quadier, and then it peaks right as we close. We get the big, broad, yeah. quade smile. But the way it's, you know, watching it and watching, knowing Dennis Quaid and then watching this character, you do kind of feel like this is what would happen if a jock were really good at paleoclimatology. Like it starts out with him going, yeah, I'm going to leap a potentially continent wide crevasse that is opened up to get a series of tubes (laughs) and then I'm going to hop back. And then the rest of the movie kind of feels like, okay, this is what a guy who's really good at everything by default would do in this situation. He, you know, he doesn't give the best presentation. He antagonizes the vice president. He's just sort of going until suddenly you get these events that catalyze, okay, just set this guy in motion. This is what he's good at. He's going to bulldog it from DC to New York to rescue his kid without thinking about it. And you're like, yeah, now I'm in the Quaid zone. Yeah, I've entered Quaid time. And uh, and I think it <laughs> it works more as the movie goes on. And the part where he is less credible, like the paleoclimatology, is all already so preposterous that he can't really be much of a sore thumb. 
sticking out, you're like, well, all of this is ridiculous. Am I supposed to think that this guy is a joke by comparison? Like, you know, he's yeah. in a clown car. That's why he's got that makeup on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, who's going to carry that scene yeah. um, right. effectively? <laughs> it's not fair to ask Philip Seymour Hoffman to do it or whatever. Like, it's not built for that. Yeah. Well, and you could definitely retcon it. Not that you have to, in, in our opinion, I think. But you could definitely retcon it to be like, this is the paleoclimatologist, LOL, that they pick to send to the White House because he's kind of fratty, like the president, Georg Bosch. I mean, you know, <laughs> like th- this is who they choose. Bosch. <laughs> they they choose this him. guy to communicate to him on that level. But I also think the movie didn't think that through. And why would they? Because when they got to number six on their on their wish list, their Dennis Quaid was, and he's like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll strap some uh, racquetball rackets on my feet and clomp around. Yeah. That's fine." It's like just one question: Do I get to walk around a lot? <laughs> <laughs> do I get to put my hand on the small of my back and kick a hip out? He doesn't actually do that, I don't think. No. Mm. Hearing Jeb describe the thrill of watching him go Quaid mode at a certain point in the movie really tells me what all this continued exposure has done to your guys' minds. Like, being able to pick up the little tasting notes and terroir in a <laughs> Dennis Quaid performance in a CGI-driven action film, like, you'll never recover from this. Look, yeah. that's why they pay us the buck. So Yeah, I, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I've heard you say, like, this is actually a fairly nuanced Lacey Chabert performance before, yeah. so, like, well, that's different. Don't come on my other job and guff me. <laughs> Next time on Quaid in Full, In Good Company. In the meantime, throw another book on the fire and use its light to check out the show notes and follow the <laughs> podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod and get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Why don't you drop by the mall, you ingrate? Or go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. You're right. It was all for nothing. <laughs>